Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. This month's selection is Rebecca Mackay's novel, I Have Some Questions For You. It is a boarding school murder mystery. It's about Bodie, who is invited back to Granby, the boarding school that she attended to teach a class about podcasting. When Bodie was a student, her former roommate, Thalia, was murdered. A Granby staffer, a black man, was convicted of the crime. That is all I'm going to say for now, though this is a spoilery conversation that abounds. So if you haven't read this book yet and you don't want to know what happens, go back in the feed and listen to my interview with the author, Rebecca Mackay. That is spoiler-free because we are going to get into to it today. I am super excited to introduce you to this month's readers. With us, we have Jonklyn Hill. She is the host of the Vox podcast, The Weeds, and the former host of the WAMU podcast, Through the Cracks. JQ, hello. Hello. It's so good to be here. Yay. Thank you for reading a whole ass book and coming to talk about it. <laughs> it is lengthy. So it is I'm, lengthy. I'm I know. I appreciate both of you and your time with this one. We also have Jason Moon. He's a reporter and producer at New Hampshire Public Radio, and he hosts the podcast there called Bear. Brooke. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so you are both hosts of podcasts. So I think we should maybe talk about like the podcast shaped elephant in this room, which is the (laughs) timelines around how quickly these teenagers are making podcast episodes. Um, Especially you two have both made like audio documentaries about crime. Do you have any sense of how long like an episode would take, let alone like a whole season of a show, like what they're talking about in this book? Oh, gosh. Uh, (laughs) So we started reporting on through I pitched through the cracks in 2016 Uh and the first season explored uh, the story of Relisha Rudd, who was a second grader who disappeared from a family shelter in D.C. and was missing for 18 days before the city realized anything was wrong. And I didn't get to start reporting in earnest till 2018. And then it came mm-hmm. out in 2021 just to kind yeah. of give a timeline. That sounds about right. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever spent less than 18 months on a documentary series. Oh, that's so intense. I think that felt obviously like that was something that took me a little bit out of the story. But for the most part, I thought this was a pretty compelling read, especially given its lengthiness. I want to start with a voicemail we got from our listener, Erin, because I thought she brought up some really good points. And it's a it's an interesting place to start the conversation. OK, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I binge. I have some questions for you in like two days. I couldn't put it down. I was completely enthralled. I'm not someone who consumes a lot of true crime, but I loved how she gave us in all those different perspectives, these different distances from the crime, and then also these different temporal distances from the crime. And so it created this constellation whereby you as the reader started to think, okay, if I got enough of these data points, then surely the truth is going to emerge from them. 
And the further I got from reading it, the more I started to question whether the book had actually achieved its stated aims of interrogating the true crime genre. Like I, the fact that I couldn't put it down, the fact that it was this question of not just someone's murder became entertainment, but also someone's unjust treatment at the carceral system was like another form of entertainment. And I don't know if the subversion that I thought was taking place as I was reading did actually take place. I think that there are gradations maybe of success here, not that it's you did or you didn't, and she falls somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm still gnawing on it, so I'm really excited to listen to this conversation and kind of evolve my thinking. Wow. I thought that was just such a thoughtful interpretation mm-hmm. of what's happening with this book. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, what do y'all think? Is gradations of success, is that a fair way of putting it when it comes to specifically sort of like examining the tr- true crime genre of it all? Erin kind of put her finger on something that I've also been thinking about. Uh, there were moments in the in the book, I think, the, like the, the way it opens, I, I was really mm-hmm. excited by mm-hmm. um, the way that, uh, and I know you talked about this in the interview with the author, but the way that she's describing the kind of like trading cardification of, of true crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is cool. This is like, this is, um, this is a very uh, aware story about true crime. Um, but though, yeah, by the end there, there were some, some ironies that I felt like weren't being uh, acknowledged. And I found myself pretty frustrated by the protagonist mm-hmm. who kind of starts with that perspective. And then by the end, I feel like she's totally lost it and has totally become, the thing that she was sort of critiquing at the at the start of the novel. I also had frustrations with the protagonists at times, especially in the latter half of the book. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing I had to remind myself is that, one, this is a work of fiction, and two, even going into this, she's not technically a journalist because right. I think there were some lines that she mm. crossed and things that she did yeah. where I'm like, yeah. ooh, girl, ethically... Mm-hmm. If I was your editor, I would say a big fat no to this. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting. I don't know if 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 you experience this like producing and making your podcast, Jason, but I there were times that I related to um the character of Brit in that when I first pitched and started through doing through the cracks, it was this constant question of Am I the right person to tell this story? Mm-hmm. Is this what's yeah, going on? Yeah. And I think when you ask yourself those questions, yeah. that means you are the right person to do yeah. it. And I think Bodhi, the protagonist, in the beginning she was asking those questions. And in the second half of the book, she did not. Mm. <laughs> and I think that was very notable and almost maybe done on purpose. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is from Angie Kim, who's a friend of the show and also is the author of Miracle Creek. I think my favorite thing about this book is the structure. It reminded me a little bit of Danya Kafka's um, notes on an execution, which I know you all loved too. I remember um, listening to that podcast when you guys discussed it. Um, This very propulsive present day through line uh, was the wrong man convicted of murdering the narrator's roommate. Um, That's the, that's the, question that's posed at the very beginning and going back and forth with all these hypotheses sections addressing all the different suspects who could have killed Talia, the roommate. And the other thing that I loved was the narrator is addressing a you throughout the story. 
um, which made for a really intimate quality to the voice, which I just was obsessed with. And I felt like it was really haunting. And I loved how we came to realize who exactly that you is gradually throughout the story. Just loved it. I thought, I mean, I think like speaking to what you said, Jason, about how you were very intrigued by the beginning, I think that was something that really caught my attention early on, too. And I really enjoyed kind of trying to figure out who the you was. Um, I'm curious how that worked for both of you. I think I was a little disappointed with how it ended up. Like I wanted a little bit more of a resolution with the Mr. Block stuff, which we did not get at all. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I I found myself wondering at the end, like, Oh, so is this a letter that she's posting in the mail to him? Mm. You know, what what is this document that she's been writing that we've been reading? There was one moment in particular where she sort of like she has that romantic encounter with another character. And then, you know, she's saying, I'm not going to give you those details. <laughs> I had a friend who read this book and was so upset. About she was like, we couldn't <laughs> even get the sex scene. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it just, yeah, it took me out of it because it made me start wondering, like, well, did those rules always apply in all the sections of the Mm -hmm. book, you know? And so, yeah, I think in the end there wasn't, like, a big payoff that I might have hoped for. Which I think you could make the argument that, like, often with, you know, uh, questionable interactions teenage girls have with adult males, there is no resolution, and so I guess maybe you could make that argument that like that it's just that's just the reality of it. But I still found it pretty dissatisfying. I also wonder if the you in hindsight, like she begins to become obsessed with this case and a kind of obsessed with this man. And I'm like, oh, is that you kind of like showing how kind of obsessed she is getting with this man and his story? Like, it, and, and, mm. and, and, and I think I have to have to sort of set in my mind, like, okay, she's an unreliable narrator. Like, these things happen. She is our narrator. Like, I don't think that she's purposefully being deceitful, but she is clouded by this obsession. And I think the use of you and writing the book that way kind of shows, like, this increasing obsession she's having both with this man and with this case. Mm -hmm. I did think it got a little messy in a couple of instances where... We as readers needed explication that Mr. Block as a teacher at the school may not have needed, you know, when it came to just sort of explaining like distances between things or Mm. that one student who was in his class or whatever. Like sometimes it was like, "Mm, this is feeling a little a little hairier than maybe I'd like it to. But but yeah, the other thing Angie mentioned in that voicemail that I did think was a really interesting device was the sort of like playing out the theories on who on how Thalia could have died. Did those work for you? I I did appreciate those. I thought she was capturing what true crime obsession can look like in a very effective way. Those those, you know, speculative um fantasies or or you know, uh, scenes that that people build based on the breadcrumbs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I like that that she that the author was showing that, but then I guess what frustrated me about Bodhi by the end was that she does the same thing. She basically arrives at a her idea of who's guilty in much the same way the cops did hmm. and much the same way that the you know the kind of reddit boards that she's you know annoyed with in the beginning do and there's and there's no real acknowledgement of that. You know, she even does like 
like I think Jonathan, you were you were getting at it earlier, where she's like crossing some boundaries. You know, she's she she lies to some of the yes. people she's interviewing. Which, if you talk to false confession experts, is like the number one thing they wish cops would stop doing mm-hmm. is <laughs> lying to suspects about what evidence exists. Yeah. Um, and so, in that way, it, yeah, it kind of it was like a good setup that that um, structure, but then the ending didn't feel like it was like aware that it was like falling into the same rut, at least as far as I could see. Just sort of laying it out. It almost. Did you all watch the staircase at all? The original documentary. I saw the original, yeah. yeah. And just to clarify, the staircase. It was originally a documentary about a woman who, like, is found dead at the bottom of stairs, and then the the investigation that ensues from that. Is that a fair characterization of that story? Just for people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, that? yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. When they did the series, like the um, sort of dramatic series for HBO, there's this instance where they recreate what the fall would have been. Hmm. Mm. And it, it reminded me of that. Like reading this book, I'm just like, Oh, Reese Witherspoon is going to get her hands on this. And I'm going to see like a bunch of like treacherous white (laughs) women, like act this out, which honestly is one of my favorite things. Like, yeah, I will watch. Yeah. This is like a combination of like lots of my interests, which is like, it had a critique of the criminal justice system podcasts and like white people being messy. Like it's, those are things that classism. Yeah. It's, it's, those are things that I enjoy and I can just see like (laughs) Reese Witherspoon getting her hands on this. I don't know, maybe playing Beth and um, just Mm, like these continual reenactments. Good casting there. Hey, HBO, get at me, you know, uh, Always looking for a new check, um, but I can I can totally see them re- reenacting that kind of like they did in that version yes. of the staircase. Like that was an aspect of the book that really worked for me. Um, so obviously, a super important part of a book like this, especially one as long as it is, is that you actually care about the mystery and are curious about what happened. And we got a take from a listener about that one. This is Kali from Philadelphia. I didn't love the book. I will say that I did. The one aspect I appreciated was when she listed the various crimes against women and kind of clustered them together. What didn't work for me is that all in all, after I finished reading it, I felt like I was reading the production notes of a podcast instead of the finished polished product, you know? So after a while that kind of wore on me that it was, just Bodie pretty much manipulating people to make the podcast that she felt she couldn't make. She wasn't even a friend of this girl who was murdered. And eventually, even though we get to find out who killed her, I don't think the payoff was worth the journey. Yeah. I mean, for me, I don't know who committed the murder. Mm. I, you know, I don't trust Bodie's, you know, interpretation of, you know, blood, I mean, mud splatter mm-hmm. on a, on the back of a sweater uh-huh. and a timeline and people's memories from 30 years ago. I mean, that's a pretty, I wouldn't vote to convict on that kind of evidence. I, I mean, I wouldn't vote to convict on the evidence that he had against uh, Omar sure. in this story. But I, but that's, that's the kind of irony that I felt like goes unacknowledged by the end, you know, where she for most of the book is, you know, convinced that it was the teacher based on one set of circumstances, you know, dots in the notebook and, you know, his general like uh, 
creepiness. Uh, and then, you know, she's she's utterly convinced, and then she is utterly unconvinced and switches who she thinks, you know, did it without really any solid evidence, at least as far as I... And, and I, you know, I have to say, like, I'm coming into this story having just reported a series about uh, a possible wrongful conviction in New Hampshire mm. that's based on a confession that may well be a false confession and no other evidence. Huh. So I'm probably, like, more, like, sensitive to that kind of yeah. thing than, than perhaps the average reader. But, yeah, I, I just get a little queasy about the throwing around like certainty of guilt when there's with like circumstantial evidence like that and and you know theories and kind of connecting dots and you know that's that's a dangerous thing that's how we end up with wrongful convictions and obviously she's not putting someone in into a prison but um it's that kind of attitude that sort of um bugs me about true crime sometimes and i and i i was kind of hoping the book would get there hmm. in in its critique so I think of it in two minds. One is sort of like that professional journalism mind where it's like, you know, I got to fact check this. I got to see. And the other is sort of the gossipy, like, <laughs> you know, off the record, like, girl, did you see like, oh, girl, it was totally mm-hmm. him that did it. Like I like, for instance, you know, I think of the Murdoch murders before that conviction. I was like, you know, we got to see what happened. You never know. Mm-hmm. But like privately, it's like, girl, he obviously did it. <laughs> Like, oh, my gosh, like, what are these people doing? They live in crazy like it's of those two minds. What's so interesting, and I think part of it is the character got lost in this particular aspect and no one called none of the other characters called it out because none of them knew to call it out. But she definitely was trying to solve this versus this idea of okay, let's get the truth out and, like, Mm. this does cast doubt on Omar and the way the investigation was run. Like, she could have been, like, focused on, like, how the school reacted, the fact that it was a botched police job. And that in and of itself, I think, is enough to be like, okay, maybe there should be a relook at this trial versus, oh, we need to find out who did it. Like, I think of approaching through the cracks, it was not a whodunit. We were not like, we're going to find out what happened Mm. for sure. But it's more so... How does a city with so many resources miss a child for 18 days? Like, how does it happen? And that part got lost. And there were really no characters to call that aspect of it out. I think that's a really interesting distinction also, because I think you're right that like Bodie just wanted to know. I don't think she was actually about sort of like figuring out how to call out the injustice of it all. Yeah. Mm. And in the, in a similar way, I think her relationship to, or I guess really lack of relationship to Omar, right, bugged me in yeah. that way. In that she sort of like, um, Omar felt very flat to me as a character throughout yeah. the whole mm-hmm. book. And there's that there's that one like kind of phone call scene yeah. with him that felt kind of tacked in there to me. And but for most of the book, it's it's sort of like you get Omar through like Bodhi's, you know, distant sympathy for him, which it felt a little icky to me. Icky distant sympathy, I think, is a great way. Well, Jason, I thought you brought up a really interesting point, too, about like the idea of like memories from 30 years ago and just the fallibility of all of them, because that was one thing that I thought about now and then with this one was just like, and I think. I think she is supposed to be intentionally sort of like a and, you know, maybe untrustworthy narrator just because memory is fallible. 
But I also found it really interesting how many details she did remember of specific scenes and dates in high school that like I could not yeah. tell you, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, having just finished again a, a series that, you know, the case uh, happened in the late 1980s. And, you know, I probably interviewed, uh, I don't know, 40-ish people mm-hmm. about this thing that happened 30 years ago. And I, every single one of them was misremembering wow. details that, that I was able – I was able to know that because I had the their testimony wow. or, you know, the police report or whatever. And, yeah, it, it, it actually was – it became a challenge in how to make a radio story because I couldn't use a lot of people's tape because they were just saying right. things that were – not factual, not because they were lying, but just because they, you know, were mixing stuff up. Huh. Yeah, I mean, JQ, do you remember anything you did your sophomore year or whatever? <laughs> oh, gosh, not to that amount right? of detail. Like, uh, no. If someone was like, do you remember that night at the bonfire? Yeah. I'm going to be like, child, I was at a bonfire? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Let's listen to another voicemail and then we'll take a quick break. This is Katrina from Chicago. I am a stage manager by profession. I do theater for a living. I went to a boarding school for high school. I went to the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy sophomore through senior year. We had to live on campus. And I've made podcasts. I don't think there was a murder at my high school, but maybe I need to make another podcast to find one. Anyway, I think this book is actually my biography. And I look forward to finding out how it ends so that I know how to plan for my future. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, as promised, let's take a break. We will have more on I Have Some Questions for You in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So we've already heard from a couple listeners who, and we also discussed sort of like the, the Me Too stories um, that, that come up in this book in the, in the form of lists. So let's take a listen to Liz in Minnesota. I'm especially taken by the whole like the one where, like the one where um, when she keeps going over and over like all the different stories of uh, women abused or murdered um just all those pieces and how much it just we become so immune to it because there are so many uh but yet each one is so individual I thought I think that that was a really strong way to continue to weave that narrative and forget that even though we're talking about um one story and one Bodhi's recollection of it and her search for meaning within it it's really well done love Rebecca Mackay Cannot wait for this discussion. We also heard from Anna in Long Beach, who also really appreciated that aspect of the book. Let's take a listen to that one, and then we can talk about it a little more. I loved how in the book, the harassment sort of snuck up on you. At first, the narrator describes Mr. Black as her favorite teacher, and maybe the kid who's harassing her, you know, maybe that's all in good fun. Maybe it's a little flirty. 
But by the end of the book, it's it's totally clear that Mr. Block is a serial abuser of teenage girls, and it's clear how much harm this kid has caused her. Um, it's distilled for us, I think, when Carlotta comes down with breast cancer, and the narrator links that directly to the time uh, Pee Wee squeezed her breast, and it turns out to be deadly. And I just thought that that was such a, a powerful way to describe how this kind of harassment really poisons us to our core. I really just love this book so much. Mm. I did like how they incorporated a lot of the Me Too stuff. Again, I don't know. Whenever I read books, I turn them into like movies or shows in my head. (laughs) And in this production, like say they're talking about this story, but every time the details change just to show that like there's always going to be something going on. There's always going to be an incident. I found that really interesting. Mm -hmm. The Carlotta stuff, I wish... I wish we would have gotten to know a little bit more of her in flashbacks. Yeah. I think f- I, I wish she would have been fleshed out to the same extent as Fran or if at least like, mm-hmm. you know, they still keep up with each other. Maybe get into that. I also thought the way that these teenage boys had been harassing them. It was very real um, mm-hmm. and really interesting. Uh, the only Me Too thing that felt shoehorned in was her the husband yeah the husband and like i get what they were going for it felt like they were kind of going for like the aziz on sorry um (laughs) is it like is it me too or does this open up a conversation about yeah yeah or like just does it open up a conversation about like okay sexual politics can be consensual and okay but still sticky and we do things we don't want to do Mm. and there's a conversation to have there. I don't know. That part didn't do as much for me. I think it was to sort of show how people were going to cast doubt on her character when it came to the case and try- and making mm. her look like a hypocrite. But I don't know that it was necessary in order to do that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. We actually we did get a voicemail that spoke more specifically to that. This is Sam in Brooklyn. I read it really fast. I couldn't put it down. But when I got to the end, I felt like there was something missing and it's a 450 page book so that feels weird (laughs) um there was just like not enough of any of the hefty topics that the author tried to tackle one of the things i did really like though was the flashbacks to the 90s um i was also in high school in the 90s just like bodhi and i feel like makai did a really good job of capturing that like casual assault that would happen every day that was just because boys would be boys um, or whatever the adults were saying to us then. But ultimately, like, I don't know that it had a lot to say about Me Too or about assault and power imbalances. And it felt like the attempts to kind of make it a little grayer just were flat. Hmm. It felt like she was trying to say something, especially around kind of like accountability and or cancel culture. But Mm -hmm. it left me just sort of being like, I'm not sure why this is in here. But I think your point about like discrediting her makes a lot of sense just narratively. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the greater goal with that. And just to show like, oh, it's not all like it can all be different. But I don't know. I'm also just like, have your husband do something terrible, you know, right? have him be the bad guy. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would have been a lot more interesting. Jason, did those how did those read for you? 
I think a, a parallel that went a little unexplored, I think it gets briefly mentioned um, with this idea of like, what should we believe, you know, and in the context of Me Too, the, the message is believe women, but in the context of, of you know, uh, wrongful convictions, there's a message is be skeptical. Hmm. And, and so it felt like those were two kind of parallel threads that, that like almost touched, but I, I could, the, I, th- I think your listeners are putting their finger on it better than I am. That, that there was a lot of the interesting topics and ideas and themes that we were swimming in, but they didn't quite come together at the end in a way that felt satisfying. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Wynn also had a similar take. I just felt like this book was too long and too ambitious and loaded with too many themes. Maybe if I was a true crime junkie, I might have enjoyed it more. I feel like if the author would have focused on maybe just one or two of the themes that she was working in the book, it would have felt more complete and purposeful. Would either of you consider yourselves to be true crime junkies? I would guess no, right? No. Um, I mean, you mm. like messy white people. I mean, I do. I I really do. Like every time they get in some mess, I'm like, "What y'all doing over there? That that's crazy." Um, but I I I do have an interest in true crime. Like, well, obviously, but even consuming it, I think. Like for instance, and I just finished that uh, documentary on Hulu about the cult at that took place at Sarah Lawrence College. Oh, um, okay, yeah. So you're doing um, it. Yeah, and so like I have an interest in it. I shy away from shows that use sort of police at their word. Um, Like, I'm more interested Mm. in, you know, things that examine, like, the criminal justice system, power, like, how these things happen systemically. Like, that's kind of where my interest lies. Admittedly, forensic files and law and order were kind of my entry point in childhood. But I think this was interesting because the genre is kind of at this crossroads Mm. right now. I think especially like after the uprisings of 2020, like people are just kind of examining how they think about our criminal justice system Mm. and victims rights and just all these different things. And so because of that, like this book very much appealed to me in that since. But of course, there were still blind spots. Yeah, yeah. I will say we heard from a listener, Cassandra, who thought the true crime stuff did work for them. I realized as soon as I started this that it was going to be really difficult to tell whether it was good because I love all of the components so much. Murder mystery, podcasts, most importantly, boarding school setting, irresistible. Um, But then It ended up actually legitimately really resonating. I'm around Bodhi's age. The idea of looking back on experiences from 20 or 30 years ago and perceiving them differently and really reckoning with them is very identifiable. So I'd say this could have been a much lamer book and I still would have enjoyed it. But I bow down to Rebecca Mackay. I'm having a wonderful time. I'm a few pages from the end and can't wait to finish. I just love we I feel like this book more than any other. We've gotten such a broad spectrum of reactions. I think it's really Mm -hmm. cool. You know, one thing that that voicemail makes me think of is it's worth 
giving Rebecca credit for attempting to be a, a self-aware true crime, mm. uh, crime narrative. As the listener just said, could have been really lame. It could have been just a, a straightforward um, murder mystery set at a boarding school. That's not not for nothing that um, the book set out to, to accomplish what it did. Mm. I also think it is a real feat in craft. I mean, you can tell she she's just an excellent writer. And I thought... Each chapter kind of felt like its own defined morsel in a really satisfying way. Mm. And they often would end in these really lovely sentences. And it wasn't like, a you know, sometimes with something that is more on the thrillery side, it'll be like, and that's when I saw the gun or whatever. (laughs) And it's like this ridiculous cliffhanger sentence. But these felt so complete in a way that I just really admired. I could tell that like she... She, as she wrote this, she was thinking of the books in their specific chapter units in addition to like the entire work, which I thought was really interesting to experience. Well, while we're saying nice things, I, <laughs> I um, points for the research uh, mm. on New Hampshire yeah. and the <laughs> oh, criminal yeah. legal system here. <laughs> yeah, um, that part worked for you. Yeah, yeah, it felt uh, it was legit. So y'all have good public defenders, is what I learned um, from That's, this. You know. <laughs> I, I live with one, so I'm Aww. obligated to say yes, but it's also true. <laughs> That's so sweet. I love it. Before we get to our final questions, Jason, you said something earlier that I thought was really interesting about how you weren't convinced that Robbie did it because I totally bought it. And it made me wonder, JQ, what you thought. Oh, yeah. I thought he definitely did it. I think the point about the shed very much made me be like, oh, Robbie did it. Especially, I'm like, Omar definitely should be released from prison. Mm -hmm. I get why it ended that way because that's just how, again, the prison industrial complex, all that stuff works. But Mm -hmm. I was like, him not getting released actually felt not realistic to me. That's interesting. Did it feel unrealistic to you, Jason, given I just, because you're like, you know, closer to like literal New Hampshire court system? Uh, Unfortunately not. Um, New Hampshire is a uh, state that has never exonerated anyone convicted of murder. Wow. Wow. So Omar would have been a first. Holy shit. I don't That's think really I knew that. Wow. No. Okay. Maybe it is realistic. No. New Hampshire has a sort of, in, in lots of ways, it has this kind of exceptionalism attitude about itself. Right. Like, you know, we're different. We're better. That's why we get to have the first primary, you know, whatever. <laughs> And that extends to the New Hampshire legal system. That's, you know, they're like, well, you know, we do it better here. It's not like down south. Mm. If you look at the, on the National Registry of Exonerations, New Hampshire is one of the states that uh, has never, wow. no one's ever been exonerated after a murder conviction. And in fact, for anything, there's only been two people who've ever been convicted and then, and then let out. Wow. wow. That's shocking. Yeah. I guess it shouldn't be yeah. shocking. Wow, that's so interesting. And season two, Bear Brooks, all about the guy who's trying to be first. Wow. Yeah! Holy shit, dude. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to listen to this. So I would love to get your recommendations on other books or podcasts that y'all think would be of interest to people who liked this book. But first, um, we have our completely arbitrary rating system. And in this case, I figure since we're all podcast people, we should just lean into it. And my question is... Would you subscribe and or rate and review this podcast? I got to say I would subscribe if they were like, 
there was, especially, ooh, if you tell me about a potential wrongful conviction, mm. it's gonna, especially like black man wrongfully convicted in a very white space, I'm gonna be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm at least downloading the first three episodes, I gotta say. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I think I agree. Yeah, the, those are the, the stakes are real in that sense. Yeah, for sure. And you wanna find out what happens. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, are there I mean, I I think especially in terms of podcasts, I would be really curious if y'all have any recommendations for people who read this and were like, oh, this was really good. I would love to, like, explore some of these, especially if they do maybe kind of tackle some of the more structural stuff. I mean, obviously, each of your shows I will recommend. (laughs) Thank you. So you don't have to. But I'm curious if there's anything else that's been on your radar that you would recommend for folks. Um. I really, and they're in a second season now, Louder Than a Riot, Mm, which looks at, like, hip-hop. So good. Highly recommend. That team is amazing. Like, highly, highly recommend checking out Louder Than a Riot. Um, It made me think of another book that that I read uh, about two years ago when I was first starting to do uh, reporting on this most recent series that has to do with uh, a possible false confession. And I felt like, you know, this book kind of gives you like a morsel of like um, the science and psychology behind false confessions. But wow, it is. I mean, it's a it's a rabbit hole you can fall down. It is so fascinating how and why people do falsely confess to things they didn't do. And um, one book that I read at the beginning of like falling down this rabbit hole was um, this book by Lawrence Wright from the mid 90s uh, called Remembering Satan. Whoa. Uh, I know it's an intense title. Holy but shit, that's a title! Yeah, right. It's uh, it's like set in the midst of the like satanic panic, and it covers a false confession of the most um, terrifying variety, which is uh, what they call an internalized false confession, where the the false confessor actually comes to believe in their own oh, false God. confession. And anyways, it's just a fascinating psychological look at at why people do that, which is hard for many of us to imagine. That's super interesting. One that comes to mind for me, which is very different, but I don't read a lot of nonfiction in general or true crime, but one that was recommended to me a couple of years ago is uh, Empire of Pain, which is Patrick Radden Keefe's book about the Sackler family. Mm. And it's so well done. And I think it does a really good job of looking at, at the systemic you know, flaws that facilitated the opioid crisis. And I just thought it was so propulsive and well done and and is about messy white people also, which made it also enjoyable, I will say. (laughs) You know my genre of content. That sounds right up my alley. I love mess. I really do. Well, JQ, Jason, thank you both so much for taking the time to read this book and for bringing such thoughtful feedback to it. This was a really fruitful conversation. My pleasure. Yeah, it was great being on. that's it for book club this month thank you as always for reading and listening along of course extra special bonus thanks to angie anna cassandra aaron collie katrina liz sam and win for all of your amazing voicemails i really loved what a great variety of responses this one got i thought it was really fun i hope you agree just a friendly reminder our april book is michael bennett's better the blood we're gonna stick on the like murder mystery theme for a little bit longer in may 
We are shifting gears and reading Idra Novi's Take What You Need. Both of those books are already out. And I am announcing right now what our June book club pick is. It is Shannon Chakraborty's delightful Muslim lady pirate romp. It is called The Adventures of Amina Al-Sarafi, and that is also out now, so you can get reading. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman. J.P. Swenson builds our newsletter every week, and Brendan Banazak is our executive producer. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.